and saying that they are being truthful, but behind their back they've got their fingers crossed, which in their mind, in the child's mind, means it's okay that they're lying. Uh, my fingers were crossed, they'll say in their defense later. This is what James hates because the Lord Jesus hates it. It's the work of the devil. The issue is truthfulness across the board. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under God's judgment, he warns. This is a complete echo of what James has been writing earlier in the letter. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't slander each other. For that sin against God in the first place, and He will judge you for that slander. You have to love your neighbor. Don't speak evil against him. And besides that, besides it being an offense to God, there's no faster way to break down church life, to break down trust, to break down relationships than when we are not honest with each other. If we don't keep our commitments to each other, let alone our commitments to God, that's how we break down the church. That's one of the motives for James's writing. He wants the church to function in a unified way as the body of Christ, as we're meant to function. So Blake and Jaden and Lucas, in the words of James, above all else, let your yes be yes and your no be no, whatever the circumstance Today, every day, let your commitment that you're making today be genuine. Let it be something from your heart that you are going to work out the rest of your life in the strength of the Lord. Be truthful. And brothers and sisters, let us support our three brothers in this. Let us join them in this calling to be truthful in all things. Let's not be fake with one another. Easy to be fake with one another. Put on a front. We've put on a mask. Let people think. Give them a certain impression of us. We do it in person. We do it online. Forget it. Be truthful. Let what you say be the truth. Be open and honest and vulnerable with one another. And in that way, we can help each other stay on the path of life. For that seems to be James's driving concern all through our text. He, he speaks about not falling under judgment, verse 12. And in verse 20, he speaks about leading a person back onto the pathway of life, that wandering person. And in between, he talks about prayer and sin. He talks about healing and restoration. So, this fits in with his whole letter. His whole letter has been a, a series of exhortations, of instructions, of commands, of warnings, so that the people he's writing to, and you remember that's the, the churches generally, the churches in the dispersion, also us today, the churches generally may stay grounded in the truth, the truth of the gospel, that the churches, the Christians may live as loyal followers of Jesus Christ, 
and walk in thankful obedience down the pathway of life. That's what James is after. He wants God's people to avoid being condemned, and he wants them to, to follow to the end the pathway of life. And those basic ideas come out in verses 13 through 18. The first verse, 13, is, is broad and covers all of life. It also comes back to where James started his letter. You recall he started the letter with talk of trials and prayer. Well, here we find those things back again. And notice that the commands of verse 13 have to do with the tongue. So he's really tying up a bunch of ideas here in a very short way. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. You do that with your tongue. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You do that with your tongue. A suffering person you might recall that from chapter 1, may be tempted to blame God for the sins or, or rather for the suffering. Or that suffering Christian might take out his bitterness and frustration on his neighbor. But James is saying, no, if you're suffering, don't blame God, don't blame your neighbor, but take those troubles that you've got and lay them before the Lord in prayer. Let Him pray if you're suffering. We are to stay focused on the Lord in bad days as well as good. Have you ever tried lamenting your sorrows and burdens to the Lord in prayer? Like so many of the psalmists did, like in Psalm 38, which we sang. David takes his physical suffering, so he's, he's sick, he's ill, and he takes the oppression of his enemies because they're also afflicting him, and he, he pours it all out before the Lord. He pleads and he cries and he beseeches God for healing and for help. He speaks respectfully to the Lord in his lament. Oh, yes. He speaks from the heart and in faith. He knows that it was God who afflicted him with sickness. He says, you, Lord, have done this. But he also in the same moment trusts that God can take it away. He's at the right address. And you and I should follow suit, brothers and sisters. That's, that's one of the gifts of the Psalms. We can, we can take those Psalms and use them to pour out our own suffering. We do it in faith. We do it like David, confessing our sins before God, looking to the Lord to sustain us, even in our sickness, and to restore us. Focus on God in the days of suffering. Well, says James, we need to also focus on God in our days of goodness, days of cheer when happiness abounds, verse 13. Why does James command that, to sing praises when our hearts are cheerful? Well, because he knows how easy it is for us to forget God when life is good. We have that, right? It's easy when life is going well. It's easy to, to just leave God a little bit behind, a little bit in the dust. We, we pay some attention, but He's kind of second to everything else. It would be easy to stray away from His commandments. 
But to overcome that, says James, make it your habit to sing God's praises. The verb that he uses here is found all over the book of Psalms. It literally means to to sing a psalm. It comes from the same root as the word psalm. Sing psalms. So alongside of the prayers of laments in the Psalter, we also find many psalms of praise. Tell me, beloved, is it your habit to sing psalms? This is a command. It's here. It's also in Ephesians chapter uh, 4 and Colossians 3. We are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but also psalms. Many of us will have reasons on many different days for cheer. Do we give thought to how this happiness is the Lord's doing in our life? Do we make it a point to honor Him with the credit by singing His praise with our spouse, with our children? Are the psalms heard around our tables at home? There's something unique and powerful about not just verbalizing, but actually singing praise. Your whole being is involved. Your your mind, your heart, your tongue, your body has to physically exert to sing So whether it's in good days or bad days, our calling is to open our hearts to God in all circumstances, to reach out to Him, to to beg Him for help and glorify Him with praise. That's how we'll walk with Him hand in hand down the pathway of life. Don't forget this, Blake, Jaden, and Lucas. Every day of your life, you need to keep in close contact with your God in prayer, prayer for help, and in praise, thanksgiving for all He's given. And that takes a certain vulnerability in itself, doesn't it? To pour out your heart to God in all honesty, to let Him know your sins, as David did, Psalm 38. James now exhorts us to take that spirit of of truthfulness, openness, and honesty, and he says, be vulnerable with one another. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call. (coughs) Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, it's true, this is a difficult verse, which has almost as many explanations as there are commentators. There's a great deal of uncertainty about what exactly James means because what he says here is not said anywhere else in the New Testament or the Old So it's hard to compare Scripture with Scripture and be certain of what's being communicated. But we'll try to make some sense out of it. To start with the oil, the anointing of oil, I think the simplest way is to see that anointing as something very specific to that culture and place. The main verb in the sentence is to pray. That's the command to pray, and then alongside of the prayer comes the anointing with oil. And we have other commands in Scripture, in the New Testament, 
that we know are bound to the culture. For example, at the end of Peter's letter, which we read, he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Well, I don't think I've kissed any of you except my wife. When is the last time any of you gave the kiss of love? We don't do that because instinctively we recognize that's cultural. That fit in the culture of Peter and James's day. In our time, the way to do that, to greet one another, would be to shake hands. I mean, we're not even doing that right now because of COVID, but that would be the replacement for the kiss of love is the handshake. We honor the principle of, of greeting one another and welcoming one another, but we, we do it in a culturally appropriate way. Well, I, I think it's the same with the anointing of oil, something that was done in that culture quite regularly. If you had a visitor come into your home, you would pour oil on his head for refreshment. If somebody was wounded, you would use oil to dress the wound. Or in the case of a sick person, oil was placed on their head, it seems, as a way to indicate that they were being prayed for and as a way to encourage them. Oil was always a, a sign of goodness or a sign of blessing, something positive. The oil was a way for, to lift up the spirits of the sick person. God is attending to you. That was the basic message. Well, in our time and place, if the elders were to come and put oil on your hand ahead, you would say, hey, that's very, very strange. So instead, we stick with elders praying for the sick person in a way which brings encouragement and blessing. We we just dispense with the cultural element of the oil. But now more to the point, what would the elders be praying for? Why were they called for specifically? Well, again, I think if we take verse 14 in the flow of the whole passage, 12 through 20, we can infer that James is speaking about a very particular kind of situation. The situation is this, when a church member falls sick, falls ill because of some particular sin in that person's life, or at least that person has the strong notion it could be because of a sin. Personal sin is in the context here. It starts in verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So that already suggests a strong possibility that illness is behind or that sin is behind the illness. And then in the same breath, verse 16, James continues, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There, he connects healing with both prayer and confession of sins. Healing results from confessing your sins and being prayed for. So, I take from that that the healing to be prayed for by the elders, verse 14, is the healing of a sickness that has been brought upon by the person's particular sin or at least that the person believes it could be that way. That's why he or she calls the elders. Now, you might have your questions about, about that. 
when I get sick, is it because I've sinned and I'm being punished? Is that the takeaway here? Is every ailment to be traced back to a specific sin in a person's life? Well, the answer to that is no. James has just mentioned Job back in verse 11, and Job is the classic example of someone who suffered tremendously, who was even sent sickness in his body, but it was not to punish him for any specific sin. In fact, that was one of the mistakes his three friends made, accusing Job of sin over and over again. They said, Job, you're so sick, you've had so much tragedy, you must have sinned. They went too far. But we should not go to the other extreme and think that God does not ever punish His children with sickness on account of their sins as a way to discipline them. We have examples in Scripture. You can think of Miriam, sister to Aaron and Moses, whom the Lord afflicted with the sickness of leprosy when she rose up in rebellion against Moses. And you know what it was that saved her from the leprosy? It was the prayer of Moses. And if you think back to Job and his friends, there's something similar going on at the end of that book. Job instructs those friends, actually God instructs those friends to take a sacrifice to go to his servant Job, and Job will pray for those friends. Job and God instructs Job to pray for them. Why? The Lord gives His own answer, I will accept Job's prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, because those friends had spoken many untruths about God. In other words, the prayer of Job was listened to by God, and God did not discipline the friends for their sins, but the point is God was well within His rights to do so, and God could easily have afflicted them with illness to teach them a lesson. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. I'd like you to turn with me so you can see it for yourself to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. So in the very same age in which we live, and James writes in chapter 11 of Corinthians, verse 30, Paul in this chapter in this letter has to admonish the Corinthians for many sins, one of which was abusing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They did not have regard for their fellow church members, so some were coming and they weren't waiting, others were left without anything to eat, and others were even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table. He mentions those sins in chapter 11. Paul says, coming up to verse 30, you should have examined yourselves, you should have repented, but instead God is now judging you for your sins. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. It's a very sobering passage right here. God had visited sickness, even death, upon certain church members in Corinth because they had fallen into sin without repenting. They had wandered from the path of life. 
And because mutual discipline wasn't happening in the church, he says you should have judged yourselves, God Himself stepped in to warn, and He warns sharply and unmistakably uh, with death, or sickness and death. So to come back to our text in James, it seems that what James has in mind is this scenario when a church member falls into sin and finds himself suddenly afflicted with sickness and the sinner himself realizes the connection or that there could be a connection. That's when he should call the elders. Why the elders? Because the elders are charged by the Good Shepherd with overseeing our lives, just as Peter wrote about, which we read. Elders are charged with shepherding the flock, shepherding our souls so that we continuously walk on the pathway of life. As official representatives of Jesus Christ, elders are there to encourage us in doing what is right. And they are there to warn us if we stray away. So if a sheep of the flock is stuck in the rut of sin, brothers and sisters, who better than to call than the elders? That's what they do. They steer us back on the pathway of life. Then the sheep can confess what's been going on in his or her life, whatever sin there's been, and the elders can give words of assurance out of Scripture that those sins are now forgiven because they've been repented of. They've been forgiven for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the elders can give words of comfort and direction. And they can pray for healing. This is how members can be kept from wandering off the pathway and into God's judgment and eternal death when they honestly open themselves up to the shepherds of the flock and make themselves vulnerable admitting and confessing their own sins. And to do so even to one another more broadly in the flock. James widens out the application in verse 16. The elders would be included in what he says, but so would other church members when he writes, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now it's broader. Confess your sins. Admit them to one another. You know, secrecy is the ally of sin. Covering up, sweeping our sins under the rug, tucking them away in the corner of our hearts, never to be admitted, never to be talked about, that only helps sin. And it only hurts us. When we keep certain sins going secretly when we hide our sins and indulge them where we think no one else can see, that only makes us liable to the judgment of God, to hell and damnation. That only causes us to wander from the truth and to commit a multitude of sins and expose our souls to everlasting death just exactly like what's happening to our brother Reuben Aceman as we speak. This is how serious that is, and this is for us. 
As far as I know, the Lord has not brought physical illness into Reuben's life. But he's done this. He graciously has allowed Reuben's sin to come to light. It's not in the dark anymore. And he's, Reuben is clearly wandering from the truth. He's subjecting his soul to death. And now it's up to us, fellow members of the flock, to gently, lovingly, persistently warn him and call him and urge him to repent. He might not like our message, but let us nevertheless be the voice of the Good Shepherd to our brother. For if we don't tell him, no one else will. And see if the Holy Spirit won't use our efforts to bring back our straying brother, as James writes. Let's pray for him too and pray for one another. You know, I'm very, very thankful for the prayer groups that I've developed in the congregation lately. Small groups of men and women meeting, sharing, discussing, even confessing sins, praying for one another. That is beautiful. That is good. That is healthy for everyone involved. When there is honesty, when there is openness and vulnerability, the accountability we have with each other in these settings and perhaps in other ways is so healthy for living close to the Lord, for walking the pathway of life. It keeps us on the straight and narrow. And when we pray, let's keep in mind the encouragement of verse 16 that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A righteous person, what's that? We won't claim ourselves to be righteous very quickly, but in Scripture, a righteous person is one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for complete forgiveness of sin and one who strives to live in the way of Christ by the power of Christ's Spirit. A righteous person has both faith and good works, to say it in James's words. A righteous person is both a hearer and a doer of the Word. Well, such a sincere believer then will only ever ask God for things which line up with God's Word, right? A righteous person only ever wants to do God's will, whether that's to have God heal and raise up a repentant sinner from his sickbed, or whether that's to, to turn a, re, a, a straying brother or a sister back to the path. We know that those things belong to God's revealed will, and so we take those requests to God in prayer. It's never that our prayers control God, but our prayers are heard by God. Our prayers don't have power in themselves, but because God alone has the power, but our prayers are taken very seriously by the God who has all the power. That's why prayer is a very effective tool, because God's listening. Just like in Elijah's day, James points out that example, Elijah prayed for drought. Why would you pray for drought of all things? Don't let it rain, Lord. And he 
He was looking for the consequence, drought. Why would you ever pray for drought? Because the people were in rebellion. And Elijah knew that the people needed to be afflicted by the disciplining hand of God so they could be brought back to repentance. Did that happen? Well, you know the contest at Mount Carmel showed to them who was truly God. Contest between Baal and Yahweh. And when the fire fell down from heaven, they said, The Lord, He is God. And they turned away from Baal, and they took the 450 prophets of Baal, and they slew them. And that's when Elijah prayed for rain again. Because at least some of the sinners among the Israelites had turned back to the Lord, had been brought back from their wandering, and a multitude of sins had been covered over by the, by the grace of God through that sacrifice that had been burned up, a sacrifice which we know pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross when He endured the full fire of God's anger upon Him. That's the final note that James leaves us with. We need to keep our eye on the ball, on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. We have to live today in light of that coming reality, because it's coming. We need to live every day walking with our Savior down the pathway of life. So, brothers and sisters, be truthful with one another. Be vulnerable with one another. Be prayerful with one another so that we'll all get there. We'll all be there, gathered around the throne of God the throne of our great shepherd, not in fear, but in great joy and thanksgiving. We will have walked the road to life, and we will have entered eternal life. Amen.